How are you guys this morning? We're doing well? Well, my name's Austin. I'm one of the teaching and venue pastors here at EV Free. Um, if this is your first time uh, to church or you're just checking out faith, uh, we're passionate about following Jesus. Uh, we, we have stumbled upon the life of faith and we think there's no better life to live than one that passionately follows after him. And part of following Jesus is allowing the Holy Spirit to form us. And so we gather together to sing corporately, to pray corporately, to to study corporately because our desire is that we be shaped to look more and more like him. And part of that shaping is gathering together in a place like this. When the community of faith gathers together, the New Testament writers call it the church. It's the gathering of God's people and the New Testament writers write about it all the time. And so at EV Free, we're, we're right in the middle of a series called Church 101, in which we're investigating some of these scriptures that talk about the church, because we want to begin to get a biblical perspective as far as what it means to be a part of this faith family, what it means to be a part of this community. And the writing on it is, it's prolific. Uh, Paul really uses two examples that talk about the church. Uh, At one point, he talks about the church as stones. And and stones and bricks in and of themselves really don't serve a purpose except to look like stones and bricks. But when you begin to stack stones and bricks on top of each other, you can build something. You can make a shelter, a home, a house, an orphanage. And so Paul says that when the believers gather together, they are like these living stones And God is constructing a building with his people. He's actually constructing a temple for his spirit. You see, for Paul, faith can't be done alone. It has to be done in the context of a local church. In the same way, he talks about the church as body parts. He he says, you know, a, a body part on its own can't do anything. An eye by itself can't see. An ear by itself can't hear. Hands by themselves can't touch. But the purpose of body parts is that they would come together to form a body. And it's only when a body part is connected to the body that it can actually function. And so Paul uses that example as well to say this is what it looks like to be a part of church. It it means to be a stone that is fixed and joined together in a larger building. What it means to be a part of the church is to be a body part and be attached to a body so that it can live and thrive and use its giftings. And so we're in this series talking about what does it mean to be living stones constructed into a building and what does it mean to be body parts that are deeply and integrally connected to each other. So this morning we're turning to Ephesians chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. We're going to read a pretty large part of scripture this morning, um, but it'll be worth it because it's great. Uh, To understand this chapter and what Paul's doing here, um, we kind of have to understand the the audience that he's writing to. Now, Paul's written a letter, and many scholars would say that this letter is, um, it would have been passed around from local church to local church in Asia Minor in the first century. This letter is not addressed to an individual. It is addressed to a body of people. Uh, Historically, uh, the letter is addressed to the church in Ephesus. Now, if you were in Asia Minor at the time, there's a few things that you would need to know in order for Paul's writings to make sense. And one of the things would be that the imperial cult was probably the fastest growing religion in the first century 
in the known world. And this was the idea of the imperial cult. Uh, Rome uh, was taking over land, expanding their empire. And anytime they conquered a land, they established the worship of an emperor. And so one of the things they would do is once they conquered a land, they would construct a statue that resembled the likeness and the image of the emperor. In the same way, they would construct shrines and temples in which you, as a person now a part of the Roman Empire, were required to go and worship the emperor. Now, part of the imperial cult is that you didn't worship the emperor alone, but the emperor was one of the gods that you had to worship along with any other gods that you decided to. There was an entire pantheon of gods. And so it's interesting that um, early in the first century, the first Christians were called atheists because they only worshipped one god as opposed to many gods. So they would say these Christians don't even believe in the gods. So they called them atheists, which is interesting. But if you're a part of the local church and the imperial cult is growing, uh, one of the things that you would experience is um, you'd be completely ostracized from society. You see, if you didn't take part in the worship of the emperor, uh, there were financial ramifications for you. You weren't able to conduct business in the marketplace. Socially, you were, you were marginalized from the rest of the people. Uh, at, at times, there was also violent oppression towards the local church for not worshiping the emperor. And so this is the culture and the context that Paul is writing his letter into. And Paul says this, beginning in Ephesians 4, verse 1. Now, we can imagine this oppression bearing down on the church. Paul's call is for unity. Because the church is going to need each other if they are going to survive the growing of the imperial cult. So chapter 4, verse 1 says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling. The calling that you have received. So be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, because there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. And there's one Lord and one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given. Grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And that is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who has ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service. Why? So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity. Unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. And it's when we become mature that we attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. What a beautiful picture. Continuing in verse 14. Then, once we do that, we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. Then watch this, verse 16. From him, the whole body, 
the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament, it grows and it builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. And we simply pause momentarily to say, would you come and shape us? Would you come and form us? Would these words help us to do what it says, to, to be more unified, that we would make every effort to keep the bond of peace? And Lord, would you console those of us who watched the Ducks game yesterday <laughs> as we eagerly anticipate and wait for next season? It's in your name. Amen. So Paul, it was sad, right? The game last night was difficult. If you didn't watch, you didn't miss anything. Um, so Paul's writing to this church, uh, and, and he's calling for the church to be unified because the church is under oppression from the empire. The empire is demanding that this, this small church in Asia Minor worship the emperor, but they have the Jewish scriptures with them. And so their call is to worship God and to worship God alone. And so this is how Paul begins the chapter. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling, the calling that you have received. Now, if you were this small church in, in Asia Minor at the time, uh, you're growing in the knowledge of Christ, but you don't have a New Testament to read. Uh, the Gospels and the letters, they're just kind of barely being circulated, and you're getting your hands on them every once in a while, but the primary scriptures that you would read and that you would recite and you would study would have been the Old Testament scriptures. And so as you're gathered in these little house churches in Ephesus, you'd read the scriptures and you'd read the story from Genesis 12 of when Abraham is sent on the mission of God to be blessed so that he would bless the entire world. And as you would continue reading the scriptures, you'd make it to the book of Exodus in which God pulls his people Israel out of Egypt, out of oppression, and he gives them his spirit. And he calls them to be a kingdom and a nation of priests, that they would put on display the presence of God to all of the nations. And so when you're sitting in this house church in Ephesus, and Paul refers to the calling that you've received, the calling that Paul is talking about is the calling to bless the world, the calling to be an agent of healing and redemption in the world, the calling to put on display to the nations what God is actually like. And for Paul, this calling is a calling they have received. It's not a calling that they've, they've made up, that they've constructed. They didn't go in for a week of vision and prayer and come out with, oh, I think this is going to be our calling for the church in Ephesus. Instead, what they did was they received it from those around them. And the church in Ephesus realizes that they are part of a legacy of faith that is thousands of years old. This little church in Ephesus, is, it's simply an expression of the mission of God that has been going on since Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And they find that their place and their part in the story is that as this small church in Ephesus, they are to extend God's blessing to their area. They are to extend God's healing to Ephesus and they are to put on display for the people of Ephesus who worship the emperor what real worship looks like what it looks like to be a follower and a disciple of Jesus. This is the calling that they have received. And so Paul says, so live a life worthy of it. 
worthy of this calling to bless and to serve and to heal and to redeem the world. Because this legacy of faith, this calling, this story is the most worthy calling in all of the world. It's the most amazing thing anybody could ever be a part of. And so when Paul makes this, this, this um, he, he says he urges them. He's not really asking them to do this. He's not requesting and he's not petitioning and he's not saying, hey, my best help advice for you is that maybe you would do this. Instead, the text says that Paul urges them, please live a life worthy of your calling. Other translations would say things like Paul is beseeching them. It even goes so far as to say that Paul is begging them. And, and, and the picture that the, the scriptures paint is that Paul would be on his knees writing this letter, please, for the sake of the mission, live a life that is worthy of the story. Live a life that is worthy of the calling. Because for Paul, there's a lot at stake. The imperial cult is pressing down around the church in Ephesus, making it hard for them socially, making it hard for them religiously, making it hard for them financially. Paul says it's worth it. It is always worth it to follow Jesus. So not only should you do this for the sake of the mission, but in the midst of following Jesus, there is no life that is more satisfying. There is no life in which you can find more joy and more contentment than in the life of following Jesus. And sure, following Jesus is riddled with hardship. It's riddled with persecution. It's riddled with taking up your cross. But for Paul, this is the only life worth living. And so he begs them, not only for the sake of a mission, but for the sake of your very selves, live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. You see, every local church has been given a corporate calling. And every local church is part of the legacy of faith. We are not our own individualized legacies in which we have our own individualized mission. Instead, we are part of this story that is thousands of years old as we extend here at EB Free Fullerton the blessing and the presence and the display of God to all of the people that live around us. That is one part of what it means to be part of the body of Christ, is that we are part of the mission of the church. And it's a beautiful, wonderful mission. So Paul establishes this. There is a calling and there is a mission that we are a part of. And then he continues in verse 2. If the church is going to fulfill this mission... He says, you're going to need to be completely humble and completely gentle. And in reference to this even, you're going to need to be patient, bearing with one another in love. See, the church in Ephesus was made up of all kinds of different people. Uh, It would have actually probably been divided down the middle. You would have had uh, people that were Jewish and people that were Gentiles. And so for Paul to say, be completely humble... Both sides would have had opposite reactions to this. Uh, If you were Jewish and and you were more steeped in the Hebrew scriptures, humility was the kind of virtue that you adopted because it was the kind of virtue that God aspired you to have. the, the, The humble person was the person that experienced the provision of God. It was the humble person that experienced the presence of God, that experienced the favor of God. However, 
If you were a Gentile, living in Gentile territory, humility was not a virtue that you would have aspired to have been. Instead, the mantra of the day was pride. It was self-importance. It was arrogance. And so you can imagine these two groups coming together, and all the Jewish people are talking about, man, they're really self-important. Like, they're really arrogant. Can you believe that? And the Gentiles are like, why don't they have any self-respect? All of them are trying to be humble. And so there's even these differences within the church. And so as they have all of these cultural differences and different practices, Paul says, be patient with each other and bear with one another. Every time someone speaks up in, in arrogance and pride, be patient. Every time someone seems too timid or too meek, be patient. Every time one of the Jewish people uh, performs one of their Jewish rituals from the Old Testament and you don't because you're a Gentile, be patient. And if you're a Jewish person and the Gentiles aren't doing what you'd expect them to do, be patient. Bear with one another. You see, the local church is designed to be a place in which there are different people from different backgrounds with different ideas and different ways of doing things. That's not what we wanted to hear this morning. (laughs) This is a room full of people that have different ways of seeing the world, different ways of worshiping, different ways of coming before Jesus. And what Paul says is that if you're going to maintain unity, you're going to have to bear with one another. You've got to be patient and you've got to be gentle. You see, if we're in a church where there aren't people that we're having to put up with and bear with and endure with, we might not be in the right church. Because a healthy, thriving, growing church is calling in people from all walks of life with different ways of doing things. And so the church should be filled with people that there's a sense of like, ooh, that person rubs me the wrong way. Ooh, I wish they wouldn't do that. But Paul says instead of separating the church, Be patient with each other. That is how you're going to begin to stay unified and fulfill the calling that you've received. Paul continues. He says in verse 3, he says, With this in mind, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You see, there's a difference between someone rubbing you the wrong way and then outright conflict with people. And so Paul wouldn't say, listen, if they rub you the wrong way, it's okay But if there's conflict, you got to kick them out. Instead, Paul says, if someone who rubs you the wrong way, if it moves into conflict, make every effort to make it right. Make every effort to keep the bond of peace. The word make every effort, it's actually the word zealous. Be eager. Be quick. Make it a priority to keep that bond of peace. And when the Bible talks about the bond of peace, uh, it's the idea that you may have had a, a, a wild horse back in the day that wanted, to, that wanted to run free, but you needed the horse in the stall, and so you would get a bond, and you would tie the horse to the stall. Or you may have a ship that would just float out to sea, but you needed to keep it at bay, and so you would get a bond, and you would tie the boat to the harbor. You see, the idea is that bonds kept things from falling apart and bonds kept things from wandering. And what Paul knows about people is that we are great at wandering. We are great at when things get difficult, we find the easy way out. We're great at when people rub us the wrong way, we just stop associating with them. We're great at when there's conflict, we completely cut them off. But Paul says, don't allow yourselves to wonder. 
especially in the local church, because there's a lot at stake. There's a lot at stake, and you're going to need each other. So be zealous. Be eager and be quick to maintain that bond. Don't let people wonder. I love the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. There's that one line, uh, Lord, take my heart and bind it like a fetter to thee. That fetter, it's, it's that same word for that bond. Keep it close. And so when Paul talks about the unity of the church, he says, make every effort. Why? Why is this so important? And this is when Paul uses his rhetoric to completely war against the imperial cult. Before we continue, are you guys with me? Who is still grieving that the ducks lost? Okay. So this is Paul's greatest, his greatest statement against the imperial cult. This is why you should bear with one another. And this is why you should be so quick to make peace with each other. Because there's one body, not many bodies. There is one spirit, not many spirits. As Paul continues, he's going to use this word one. And every time he uses the word one, he is warring against the imperial cult and warring against a culture that worships many gods, that worships a plethora and a pantheon of gods. So he continues, just as you were called to one singular hope when you were called, there is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one baptism, there is one God and one Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The imperial cult will become rubbish and dust in the face of Jesus. That's what Paul is saying to his church, is that the calling requires the worship of one God, not a multitude. And so if you're going to stand up to the pantheon, if you're going to stand up to a culture that worships a multitude of gods, you're going to be, have to be united about on the one thing that unites all of you, and that is the worship of Yahweh alone. And, and, and so I read this about the church body. I read this about body life. Well, so how do we keep the bond of peace? How, how do we actually make sure that people that rub us the wrong way, we can stay close to them? How do we make sure when there's, when there's conflict, how do we go about being eager to keep the bond of peace? And I thought there's no better example than the example of Jesus. So we'll turn to John chapter 13. Jesus is having a meal with his disciples. And uh, he says this as they sit at the table. And it's interesting the way John puts it. He, he gives us some really unique information. We're going to begin chapter 13, verse 3. It says this about Jesus in verse 3. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all Things under his power and authority. Can you imagine the feeling? All things under his power. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. You can imagine what somebody might do if they knew that they had all power. You can imagine what someone might do if they knew they had all authority. What the Gospels say about a person who has all these things is wildly different from what we might do. It continues in verse, verse 3, or verse 4. So after this, after knowing that he had all power, he got up from the meal. 
He took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. This would have been scandalous. The washing of feet was only for servants. It was only for the lowest in the house. If you were a person of any stature, or of any importance, or of any prestige, you never would have done this. It would have been so dishonoring to you. But Jesus, when all power had been given to him, he takes himself low to wash the feet of the disciples. And as he's washing the feet, verse 6 says, Then he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. Peter says, no. (laughs) No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash your feet, you have no part in me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, don't just wash my feet, but wash my hands and my head as well. Verse 12 continues. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. He says, do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and you call me Lord and you rightly do so because I am your teacher and I am your Lord. But now that I, your Lord, now that I, your teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. You see, I've set an example that you should do as I have done for you. So very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who has sent him. So now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You see, in this gospel story, Jesus is given all power. And when he's given all power, he takes on the posture of a certain of a servant. It's days later that the apostles will be in the upper room and the Holy Spirit will descend and they will be given power and authority. And when they're given power and authority, this image, this moment is going to be burned into their minds. It's at this point that they receive the Holy Spirit, that they're given power and authority. They're going to remember what their teacher and master did. That when their teacher and master is given all power, he went low. To wash his disciples' feet, asking the question, How can I help? What can I do for you? How, how can I empower you? What, what do you need? Uh, of what service can I be to you? I think when we talk about body life, and we talk about church life, at least for me, this can be one of the last postures that I want to take. I'd much rather walk around with a clipboard evaluating everything. Oh, I don't, I don't know if the parking was great today. Check. Oh, I don't know if like, the donuts were up to par. Check. Oh, oh, I don't know if I liked the seating. I, I didn't get the seat that I wanted. Check. There's too many people here. Check. I don't know if I liked the songs that they were singing. Check. I don't know if I liked the teacher. Check. I don't know if I liked the way they said bye to me when I was leaving. Check. And, and we walk around with a clipboard evaluating our experience. 
Jesus wasn't an evaluator. When he's, when he's sitting, kneeling, washing the disciples' feet, he's not saying, ooh, those toenails are a little bit long, Peter. Ooh, they're, they're, what's that growing in between your toes, right? Like Jesus, he doesn't have a clipboard for his disciples. Instead, what Jesus does is, how can I serve? How can I help? How can I empower? At the moment of Jesus receiving all power and all authority, his first step is to the posture of a servant. And I imagine for us, the call the local church at home, that might be the posture that's best for us to take. And how can I help in the parking ministry? How can I help in greeting and hosting? How, how can I help in tech? How can I help in worship? And, and when, we, when we ask the question, how can we help? It's not the idea of how can I help them do it the way I want them to do it. How can I help them do it the way that I think would be best for them to do it? Instead, it's what are you trying to do and how can I help you get there? How can I help you fulfill the vision that you have for this? How, how can I help you use your giftings better? And I wonder what the church would become if that was the attitude. The people that showed up laid down their clipboards and took up their towels. What would our teams look like? How would guests feel coming in? How would it make arbitrary things and secondary things fall by the wayside? Worship style, the teacher, the parking, the seating, the food, the sight. If the unifying thing behind us was the mission and the calling of putting on display for the nations the one God, the one Lord, the one faith, the one hope, the one baptism, how would that change the way that we approach church? That church doesn't become an inward thing that we evaluate, but it becomes an external thing that we send each other on mission into Fullerton and into Brea and into Placentia and into any city that you're coming from. What if the church becomes a place of mission in which we are being sent? And so when we come, we're, we're, we're always rallying around and unifying around one thing. Jesus. We keep rallying and unifying around one thing. There is no other name. We keep rallying and unifying around one thing. The cross that takes away the sin of the world. What if those things are the things that we rally behind and we say, then how can I serve to help make that message more prevalent? How can I serve to make that message greater? How can I serve to make that message louder? How can I serve to make that message more clear? That's what Paul is hoping for in his church. That his church would be unified for the sake of the calling of faith that they've received. For the legacy of mission that has been passed down to them and that they will pass on to the next generation. What if we're a church full of towels instead of clipboards? Let's pray. Lord, we pause for just a moment. And uh, we recognize that um, it's easy to carry a clipboard. It's, um, sometimes it's more comfortable for us to carry a clipboard, to evaluate to analyze, to put checks, to put marks, to put grades, to put a rating. 
Lord, sometimes the posture of a servant is really difficult for us. Difficult for me. But Jesus, we want to follow you. We want to be your disciples. So Holy Spirit, would you begin to shape us? And would you begin to form us? Make us people that look like you in our city. Make us people that look like you in our homes. Make us people that look like you in our churches. And so Lord, if there's repentance that needs to happen this morning, would you do it in us? If there's a reorientation of our mind that needs to happen this morning, would you do it? If there's a changing of our heart, would you do it? And would you make this space a space of repentance, a space of turning, a space where we we burn our clipboards and we pick up our towels? Because that's what our master and our teachers like. So Lord, help us to serve. Help us to be unified. Help us to welcome in the one that rubs us wrong and help us to keep the bond of peace between those we're in conflict with and make us eager to do it, zealous and excited to do it. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.